Providential Goodness Amidst Power Clash. In this podcast, we discuss how our three writers, Ibn Khaldun, Augustine, and Ibn Daud, see providential goodness at work in history. Recall that providential goodness is unintended goodness, which emerges from the processes of power despite power's devotion to its own glory. We saw the idea in the last podcast in Ibn Daud's description of the politics of the ancient Near East. We also saw it in Ibn Khaldun's cyclical view of history. One dynasty grows corrupt only for another people, still possessed of the moral vigor that stands as the basis and guarantee of power to arise in its place. Thus, a kind of goodness always emerges on top in the endless cycle of the struggle for power. However, domination, which can bring about order in society, like the big fish keeping the little fish in line, is not the mark of divine favor, and yet providence makes use of it. The fact that heaven doesn't rule by the logic of power shows in the workings of history, where goodness alone is glorious in the end. However, despite history's lesson, people tend to glory not in goodness, but the violence out of which their nations were born, the glorious revolution or the blessed conquests. Ibn Khaldun speaks of the destructive tendencies of tribal groups, but also their moral vigor, which comes from the fact that they rule themselves. Such moral vigor enables cooperation and inspires sacrifice for the group, giving it the solidarity both to conquer peoples who have grown weak as a result of being ruled by others, and also to displace dynasties that have become corrupted by power. In sum, the workings of society, inclusive of the drive for power, tends towards justice. Groups with moral vigor take power, but rule with the self-restraint that group solidarity fostered in them. Ibn Khaldun illustrates the idea with the rise of Islam, which was led by the Arabs whose solidarity was enhanced by the message of the Prophet Muhammad, allowing them to conquer the Persians and Byzantines. However, even if amassing vast wealth, they retained their simple ways, using the spoils of conquest for the good of all. It was not the religious message alone that conquered, but a process known to history, group solidarity that is based on a moral vigor which, when the group gets to power, leads it to rule with justice. If it is not power, but the moral vigor of group solidarity that makes a cause triumph, the cycle doesn't stop with victory. Ibn Khaldun notes that already within a generation of the rise of Islam, corruption had set in with the 7th century rise of the Umayyads who ruled from Damascus. Religious rule is not immune from the cyclical workings of history. The moral vigor that propels a group to power weakens amidst the temptations of cityed life. The Umayyads forgot the hardiness of early Islam and got used to a life of luxury undermining the moral vigor of group solidarity that had brought them to power in the first place. Power seeks its own glory, signaling its own demise. In the end, wickedness is thrown down and righteousness prevails until it is corrupted, only for the cycle to begin again. The process is rooted in the struggle for power, but providential goodness still prevails. Ibn Khaldun, it is worth noting, found that his study of history confirmed prophetic wisdom which speaks of God's way of proceeding with creation. The wicked don't prosper in the end. Ibn Khaldun isn't saying scripture is history, but that history corroborates its message. 
warlords like Tamerlane appear to rule, but providence has the last word. That's God's message. Scripture speaks of it. History confirms it. Augustine also explores the complex way in which providential goodness emerges from power clash. God's providence, he says, uses the negative example of war to inspire us to choose peace. Evil serves the good when we learn its difficult lessons. In addition, Augustine recognizes that a people won't prosper if not devoted to moral vigor. He illustrates the idea with the story of Nasica Corculum, a leading official of Rome in the second century BCE, who advised against the conquest of Carthage. With the removal of its main enemy, Rome would lose reason to retain its moral vigor. The logic is that of power, but preserving it depends on a kind of goodness. Without some restraint, even the existence of a strong enemy, a people's ambition for its own glory would run amuck in greed, undermining the moral vigor by which power endures. Prosperity, even liberty, will end when self-indulgence rules. History proved Nasica right. With Carthage conquered, Rome lost its enemy and the spirit of readiness that had kept it strong. Power, without another power to counter it, self-destructs. Even the clash for power yields a kind of goodness. The fact that goodness prevails doesn't mean good people will come to rule. The goodness in question here is a product of the cycle of power, and Augustine knows that power falls to the bad no less than to the good. But the fact that both bad and good flourish in this world doesn't mean the workings of history are inscrutable. For the bad, prosperity is about self-glory. For the good, it's about God's glory. Similarly, for the bad, adversity means ruin. For the good, it's a test that purifies the soul of unhealthy attachments. The consequences of history are knowable, but we need to consider spiritual outcomes no less than political ones. Amidst the unfolding of history, forces of good operate against the backdrop of evil. Power has its way for a time, but God's providence ensures that goodness emerges alongside it. If it didn't, we'd think we'd have to be bad to flourish, giving evil the final say. As Augustine puts it, God didn't want those devoted to God to think that only the bad prosper, because history shows that goodness triumphs, even if through a dark glass, we'll choose to live by it. After all, who doesn't want to side with the victor? And people do choose to live by goodness. Augustine notes righteous communities in the church, despite the sinners in its midst. But he doesn't limit goodness to the church. Jews have witnessed the true worship by living for God's goodness. And, Augustine adds, others who don't know true religion come to know the workings of providence by reflecting on history and are inspired to live by it rather than by power. This, he says, is true worship. In sum, the scope of providence extends to all. Religion helps us be good, but so too does the study of history. It, too, is a way to participate in divine grace. Ibn Daud, too, sees history as attesting to the advance of goodness, even amidst the succession of empires. Power, even if pursuing its own interests, ends up serving the cause of providential goodness. He notes the way the world's powers help Jews, even if doing so as part of a strategy against enemy powers. And some kings are good even without Torah. They rule justly by other sources of wisdom. 
In noting that Gentiles too can be good, Ibn Daud advances a global vision where providence governs all history, not only Jewish. Describing the flight of Jews from armies advancing out of North Africa, he mentions how God's providence made use of King Alfonso of Castile. Motivated by his advancing enemy, the king provided rabbinical leaders with resources to help the refugees. It's a story of power clash in the service of goodness. The king's desire for power led him to provision the leaders of the Jews, who used these resources to help those in need. Ibn Daud sees the hand of providence. God had anticipated the calamity, putting all things in place to ensure that goodness be manifest. Of course, Jews too can succumb to corruption. Ibn Daud mentions the case of Joseph Halevi, the Nagid of Granada, known for his lack of humility and for using his office to help his friends rather than society as a whole. Despite his learning, he grew so haughty that he incurred the jealousy of local princes who had him killed on the Sabbath.